Welcome to Episode 4 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm your moderator, Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are Carla Ewert and Sarah Morrow-Sornelia. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello. So let's introduce ourselves for anybody who's new to our show. Sarah, you go first. Hi, I'm Sarah Morrow-Sornelia. I currently live in High Point, North Carolina, where I teach high school English at the area's only non-sectarian independent school. And when I'm not teaching high school seniors, I'm working on my dissertation through Florida State University, where I study 18th century British drama. Carla, your turn. Awesome. I'm Carla, Carla Ewart, and I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, with my husband, Chris, and my daughters, Alice and Joelle. Um, Aside from my work in the home, I work as a freelance editor and writer and as a communications coordinator for Solomon's Porch, um, which is a Christian community here in South Minneapolis. Great. Thanks. And uh, I'd like to say officially uh, welcome to the podcast to Carla. This is her very first episode with us. Uh, I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm an adjunct instructor in English and sociology at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. And I live in Waconia, Minnesota with my husband, Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Like Sarah, I'm also working on a dissertation through FSU. My dissertation is on uh, young adult novels that adapt Shakespeare for girls. So, uh, today we're going to talk about Mariology. Um, Apologies because this was supposed to be our December episode, our Christmas episode. Uh, We thought it would be appropriate to do that in terms of... uh, Mary and feminism and December and those kinds of things uh, dovetailing together. But life got in the way, as it sometimes does, and uh, we're recording now uh, in early January. So apologies for the delay on that, folks. Thanks for listening anyway. Sarah is going to start us off with our first segment, uh, Knowing, and give us some background on Mariology. Uh, Thanks, Victoria. So as Victoria mentioned, today's episode will discuss Mariology. At its most basic, Mariology is the theological study of Mary, the mother of Jesus. As Sarah Jane Boss, the author of our selection for today, explains, the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD marked one of the earliest instances of an official church teaching regarding Mary, establishing her role as the God-bearer or the Theotokos, and by extension her role as the mother of God. Early church fathers, doctors of the church, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Karl Barth, Karl Rahner, and Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, otherwise known as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, are just a few of the myriad theologians who have taken up Mary as a subject of reflection and teaching. Now, views of Mary within Christianity have been numerous, from the veneration of Mary seen most frequently within the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, to the more varied interpretations seen among Protestant denominations. Meanwhile, and perhaps more germane to our podcast subject, feminist perspectives on Mariology seem to be mixed. Some feminist critiques of Mary argue that uh, Mary serves a role akin to that of a domesticated goddess or a placeholder, that is to say, a counterpart to the overtly masculine attributes of God or a projection of feminine attributes suppressed by masculine depictions of God. Other feminist theologians have argued for rejecting Mary altogether, either because she is superfluous or because she is an unrealistic model for contemporary Christians. Nevertheless, Mary and her role within Christian theology remain powerful and vibrant subjects and worthy of study. In addition, and also as Victoria mentioned, uh, this is a timely topic for multiple reasons, as the Roman Catholic Church, at least, celebrates two different holy days of obligation devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary around this time of year, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on December 8th, and the Solemnity of Mary, Holy Mother of God, on January 1st. Thank you, Sarah, for that concise, informative introduction. This is a great time to jump in with a caveat and say Mariology is a really huge topic. We know that we're barely scratching the surface here. So listeners, please continue the conversation on our Facebook page or on the Christian Humanist blog. Uh, Tell us things we miss, things we get wrong. Uh, We'd really like to hear from you because we know uh, that we cannot possibly cover um, this topic in such a short time. That being said, one of the reasons I chose the article I did for this episode, uh, which is Sarah Jane Boss's Francisco Suarez and Modern Mariology, 
is that all three of us have a certain degree of expertise in the literature and culture of early 17th century Europe, which is the world Suarez is dealing with. While I didn't know a whole lot about Mariology going into the research for this episode, the world that Voss lays out um, that Suarez lives in was really familiar to me. Is that true for the two of you as well? Were you reminded of any texts, any specific historical events from your previous studies? Carla, you first. Um, yeah, there were a couple of things that seemed very familiar. Um, I also researched in, in my master's degree. I worked with um, with um, 15th and 16th century liter- literature primarily and uh, was familiar with this, this time period. Um, the things that were brought to mind, of course, were um, as... Boss talked about Mary's role as sort of a, a counterpart to Eve or um, an antidote even, let's put that in quotes, to Eve and her culp- culpability um, for the fall, brought Paradise Lost to mind, of course, in the research I had done on, on Paradise Lost. Um, and then, of course, Mary's role as both a mother and a virgin and that seemingly co- that seemingly conflicting expectation um, that that set- sets up made me think of Spencer's Britomart and her similar uh, uh, sort of seemingly mutually excuse, exclusive um, things, being a matriarch and a virgin, and being a, a knight and a war and a lady, and those types of things. Um, as far as historical events goes, uh, Boss talked a lot about the shift in cultural priorities from sort of the kin group um, to uh, marriage as the focus, to that that relationship being the primary focus of culture. And so it brought up companionate marriage and how uh, during those centuries there was a rise in, in companionate marriage which is basically the, the idea that um, there, there aren't going to be arranged marriages anymore. We're going to base marriage choices on affection and on, on um, those on attraction and love and that kind of thing. And so marriage became a much more central role, had a much more central role rather than just aligning kin groups. It became the, the relationship that people were sort of focused on. So that was another thing that it brought to mind. Great. Sarah? Thanks, Victoria. Um, To use your phrase, the world of Boss's piece was a familiar one for me, too, although for very different reasons, perhaps than for you or Carla. Um, Since I went to a school that was founded by the Society of Mary, teachings about the Blessed Virgin Mary were incorporated into many of our religion classes. So for me, um, I was first introduced to the phrase Theotokos and the idea of being of Mary as God-bearer in my ninth grade religion class by a gentleman named Dr. Bob Donovan. And um, then in addition, seeing uh, Benedict XVI's work cited in Boss's explanation of contemporary Mariology was familiar for me too. Um, as far as Though uh, 17th century reference points, I was most familiar with the influences and prevalence of Galenic anatomy in the early 17th century, um, and I got a lot of that information actually from my discussions with you, Victoria. Um, but despite all of these familiar points, much of Suarez's work was new and was fascinating to me. Um, great. Thanks for... Um for adding that to the discussion and we'll give you a chance to talk a little bit more um, about uh, your earlier school experiences in a bit, I think. Um, The two of you have covered some of what I wanted to say as far as um, as far as women's roles in the period. Um, Sarah, you talked a little bit about Galenic anatomy. Uh, The piece also mentions Aristotelian anatomy, which basically posits that uh, women and men have the same genitalia, but women's are inverted. And because women are inverted men, uh, that means they're imperfect. And while um, when when babies are made, men contribute uh, form, women don't contribute form or shape, uh, the, the stuff that makes you an individual. Women instead contribute matter. Um, Suarez deals with, uh, with this anatomical construction common to the period. Uh, I was familiar with that in my work. I also wanted to talk a little bit about what Carla mentioned um, in terms of the, the role of Eve um, in, uh, and the way that influences women's roles of the period. So Boss tells us that um, that Suarez follows the examples of Augustine and Anselm and says um, Adam is more responsible for the fall than Eve is. So he's, he's sort of going against um, this 
woman's inconstancy idea that really continues for centuries and centuries in lots of literature. Uh, women in literature are referred to as daughters of Eve to label them as naturally deceptive. You see it in Spencer, uh, in Shakespeare, in Dunn, in uh, Milton, uh, obviously, as, as Carla mentioned. So I thought it was really interesting that Suarez sort of A, goes against this, and B, adds Mary into it as a way to turn this negative into a positive. Um, Boss says, uh, Eve, however, plays a contributory role in the fall, and Mary, likewise working with Christ, who is the second Adam, contributes to the world's salvation, and may be said to be a cause of it in a non-technical sense. So I thought that that... um, use of Mary as an inversion of Eve and a lot of the misogyny that literature takes from that was interesting, if perhaps a little bit problematic in a a kind of virgin whore sense. I think, yeah, I think it's interesting to see them, you know, as Eve is kind of considered a counterpart in the fall. Um, I I find it interesting because obviously the lying the the entire responsibility for the fall on Eve has been done and is very problematic, but also taking entire responsibility away from her and giving it only to Adam (laughs) is kind of also a problem to me um, because it takes away some of her agency. So this idea that there's sort of a counterpart thing that's happening with Eve and Adam, and then the same counterpart thing that happens where, where Mary can be seen in some ways as a cause of the redemption um, is is interesting, I guess, because it seems more holistic than either of the either of the options that I stated before, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, that makes sense. Um, I'm I'm glad that you included the the word um, agency in in your response. I I didn't and and probably should have. Yeah, I I agree with everything you said. That's great. So being that I was raised evangelical Protestant, I occasionally uh, was confronted growing up with people who said that Catholics weren't quote-unquote real Christians because they idolized Mary rather than fully worshiping Christ. Um, On the first page of her piece, Boss has this to say. Suarez's ethical theory and his understanding of God's general dealings with humanity assume that God has ordered the world in such a way that it is always within the grasp of a man or woman, love that that or woman is there, to increase in merit and come nearer to perfection. Suarez's teachings on the Blessed Virgin Mary present her as one who reaches humanity's final destination by following the most perfect path that is possible for a human being. Uh, While I don't think that this, uh, which seems to be part of the thesis of um, Boss's work on Suarez, is idolatrous, I guess I can see how some people could interpret it that way. Uh, Carla, I know you were raised um, low-church Protestant as I was. Did you grow up hearing respect for Mary equated with idolatry, too? I did. I did completely. Um, definitely the, I was sort of presented with the Catholic, um, view of Mary as either idolatrist, which was sort of the, the worst version of it, um, or just completely distracting from what was considered the real message as for Jesus as the son of God, um, that her part in it was overblown and therefore distracting. Um, that's how I was raised with it. I, I'm, you know, of course, the virgin birth was considered very important in my upbringing, but only in that it kept Jesus from having the sin nature that was passed down from Adam, um, which apparently is only passed through the father. And I, I guess that's interesting to me because, of course, that has really interesting implications on the sin nature of women in general. Um, but that was never analyzed anyway. But that so the virgin birth was very important. But Mary herself was definitely downplayed. Um, and yeah, so I found that. I find the whole thing interesting that, that the virgin birth continues to be that central, but Mary can have very little um, centrality. Sarah, you've already alluded to your experience um, growing up being different from ours. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, well, why this idolatry reading is, is incorrect or shallow? Sure. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely do that for you. And um, I, I can also uh, put an additional caveat on it. Um, I myself have, have been told to my face uh, that I am not a real Christian or to go even further that I am not a Christian at all. 
as a Roman Catholic, uh, and a lot of it comes back to uh, the accusation that we idol that we idolize, or that we, you know, well, we worship Mary. Um, so, as a Roman Catholic, I think my experiences are probably different than either of yours. Um, and my usual responses to claims of Mary worship. Uh, end up revolving around the importance of her role as what we, uh, as what the church calls uh, the mediatrix or her role as our intercessor. Now, this intercessory role also frequently leads to poignant questions from my friends who are not Catholic, uh, particularly regarding the need to pray to an intercessor, like, for example, a saint or Mary in lieu of praying directly to Jesus or to God. Um, but this idea of intercession, of praying on behalf of another person, is described in the Catechism as a characteristic of a heart attuned to God's mercy that has found expression since the earliest Christian communities. That's in section 2635 of the Catechism. So through this kind of prayer, we pray for each other. And by extension, Christian intercession participates in Christ's as an expression of the communion of saints. So when we're praying for each other, we are participating in this, or when we pray to a saint, or when we are asking saints to pray for us, we are participating in this body just as if we were asking each other to pray, if I were to ask you, Victoria and Carla, to pray for me for something. So Mary then becomes, for Catholics, the ultimate intercessor, both because of her sinlessness, um, as outlined in the teaching on the Immaculate Conception, that she was born without the stain of original sin in preparation for her role as Theotokos, um, and because of her unique relationship to Jesus. Um, ultimately, though, what I've always wanted to respond with but have never had the vocabulary for is something that I think Boss does an excellent job of elucidating and is also echoed in the Catechism, which is that what the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ, and what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn its faith in Christ. That's from section 487 of the Catechism. So to that end, it would seem to follow logically that we must fully understand and appreciate and and come in faith to to uh, work with Mary's role in our salvation if we are to fully understand Christ's, uh, which is something that I think uh, gets overlooked, um, which I think Carla, you alluded to earlier when you mentioned uh, the focus on the virgin birth, but not so much on Mary's role in the virgin birth. And that's one of the things that we as Catholics uh, try to work through and to pay attention to. Um, does that does that help at all? It does. It's in, it's super okay. interesting to me. I feel like I'm learning as we talk, which is great. Um, but just this idea, because because for me, I I mean, I was not taught that Mary was sinless, and that's it's an interesting difference. Um, I think, and so to me, the virgin birth and somehow her that being the way that she was kept that Jesus was kept from having a sin nature um, didn't make sense to me as, as if Mary was sinful as well as, as we are, as everyone, every other human is, then, then why didn't he inherit the sin nature from her? But so I can see why in the Catholic faith that that's necessary. Does that make sense that she must be sinless as well? Absolutely. I'm just learning as we go. Forgive my ignorance. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's fine. And actually, um, one of the, the things, this is one of the points that I, I like to raise when people actually question me about papal infallibility, which I promise is a digression that makes sense, um, that actually um, the, the Pope has only spoken ex cathedra or issued what would be considered an infallible teaching twice in the history of the church. And both of them have actually had to do with Mary. And one of them actually was the teaching about the Immaculate Conception. And the other one was about Mary's assumption into heaven, which may be something we could talk about in the spring, because I know that, that the Feast of the Assumption happens uh, many, many months from now. Uh, when we celebrate it. But yes, um, so the idea that in order to be the God-bearer, she must uh, have been born without the stain of original sin was one of the, is one of the infallible church teachings. Um, Victoria, did you have any other questions? I hope that helped. Uh, no, that, that was really helpful. I, um, I wanted to, to echo what Carla said about not having been raised, um, knowing Mary as infallible. And in fact, that makes a lot of sense as does, um, this sort of 
teaching the opposite of that. I mean, this this idea that um, sort of woman's inconstancy going through all of these women in the Bible. Um, I, I I keep going back to um, Chaucer's recounting of Jenkins' Book of Wicked Wives uh, in, in The Wife of Bath's Tale, um, you know, and, and they sort of, she tries to throw the book away, and he literally throws the book at her head, and then she goes deaf, and it's this idea that, like, women are naturally sinful, and men would be okay if it weren't just for these horrible women messing it up for them. Um, Mary being infallible sort of pulls the rug out from that entire historical literary tradition. So it's no wonder that, um, especially in the early modern period, which of course is, um, depending on what year you are, ranging from mildly anti-Catholic to incredibly, incredibly, incredibly anti-Catholic to the point that um, Henry VIII, you know, is is getting drunk with his buddies and destroying the abbeys and monasteries, making all the nuns get married. So that uh, hearing that and sort of putting those things together was really, really interesting and illuminating for me. Thanks for that. Carla, one of the reasons we decided to make this your first official episode as a regular panelist is that you recently had a beautiful baby girl. Uh, can you tell us what Boss and, uh, by extension, Suarez have to say about the divine uh, power of motherhood? And can you tell us a little bit about whether or not that resonated with your experiences? Sure. Um, yes, I did recently have a baby and, uh, she is just fantastic. Um, but the part of the reading, I think that most resonated with my, with motherhood for me, um, was toward the end and boss is discussing, um, uh, unity before differentiation. And, uh, she said, she's talking about the different implications involved in spousal Mariology, which is the idea that Mary is the spouse of God versus maternal Mariology. Uh, which is that Mary, everything about Mary comes from her as the mother of God. And that's Suarez's view um, that her bearing Jesus is really the foundation for anything that we can understand about her. Um, And she uses, uh, boss uses the one flesh motif to kind of go through this. And she writes um, the one flesh of heterosexual union is the coming together of separate bodies, which always retain their different sexes while one flesh of mother and child is a unity prior to differentiation. So the unity comes first basically is what she's saying there. And it really can't be undone. Um, And then she goes on to write that this can provide confidence that the social injustices, which are signified by natural difference can, can finally be overcome. So she's talking mainly there, I think about gender difference and, and the sort of injustices that come about over gender difference. Um, and, and I, I found it so fascinating that she emphasized this idea of um, the substantial oneness of mother and child as the way that we could overcome some of these differences. Um, um, and she's talking about it. It's not like for, for the way that she describes it, it's not the mystical coming together for a time of, of, um, of sexual oneness, uh, as, as a spousal relationship would be, but it's actually a substance. It's actually that the mother and the child share a substance. They share body, um, and are made of the same thing and that can't be undone. Um, but it made me think of sort of the inevitability of a mother's love, um, versus the somewhat contingent love maybe of a marital or romantic relationship. You have these cliches, you know, like, um, you have a face that only a mother could love and, and those cliches are grounded in this sort of unspeakable love that a mother feels. And of course I'm generalizing and you're not always going to feel constant love for your child and not all mothers do develop that kind of love, but the overwhelming majority is this sort of crazy intense love, um, that's based on, on nothing. It's not, I mean, it's not based on anything that the child has done. It's not based on how they look. It's not based on their accomplishments. It's not based on even their behavior. It's its own thing. Um, and it's incredibly intense and vulnerable. And for me, it's definitely been the most empowering and the most devastating feeling of my life for sure. Um, where marital or spousal love on the other hand is unique and strong in its own way but it's often based on some sort of a sense of attraction or partnership. Um, and something is sort of expected of the partner for love to grow and continue. Um, but I, I think it's fantastic that boss, that boss uses this substantial and unchangeable oneness of a mother and a child as the hope that we have that social injustices can be made right. Um, because it puts the shared substance um, in, in, in the case of, of all of us, our humanity 
before our differences of opinion and before our behaviors. I think um, a similar emphasis on our shared humanity is what could overcome our differences otherwise. So I found that whole section to be kind of heart-stopping. It almost brought me to tears, this idea that that there's a substantial unity in, in a mother-child relationship that's just un, can, cannot be undone. And that's sort of the place that we can go um, to overcome some of the things that we struggle with and in gender differences and those types of things. Um, so that was really fantastic. Um, also just as a bit of an interesting aside, uh, it's been discovered that mothers retain their fetal cell. They retain fetal cells from each of their children. So they literally have cells in their bodies that have different DNAs from their own. It has their children's DNA, uh, which I just find incredibly interesting. Um, and it can affect, it can literally alter your, a, a mother's, um, a mother's body. It can affect her immune response, autoimmune responses and those types of things. Um, if you want to read about it, it's on the, the U.S. National Library of Medicine's website. There are other places to find it, too, but that's a good one. Um, anyway, I heard a report on this myself uh, after I had had a, a second trimester uh, miscarriage slash stillbirth and lost a son. And I, I heard this on the radio about this, this whole process um, and how a, a mother literally retains fetal cells. And it was so amazing to me to think that he was literally still with me, that I was physically altered by his presence, no matter how brief it was. And so um, in thinking about everything that, that boss says in the, in the article about Suarez, she talks a lot about Jesus perpetually carrying the substance of Mary. And that's how Mary is included into sort of the Trinity, the filial relationship of the Trinity. But if you add to that, the idea that Mary actually retains some of the person of Jesus, some of his physicality, which is divine in herself, (laughs) the implications of that on Mariology could be really fascinating. Um, I'm just really fascinated when science and and religion can come together like that. And there can be this interesting overlap of ideas. Um, So this discussion of Mary as somewhat divine, um, has been an old, I mean, a, a long-standing thing in Catholicism, if I understand it correct, correctly, um, and, and here this kind of backs that idea up. So those were the things as far as motherhood that really hit me in the piece. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard um, of that scientific research. I will definitely check that out further. That is really, really fascinating. Um, So Sarah and I don't have children, so we're not going to speak from direct experience, but um, I I think we would like to weigh in a bit and talk more broadly about um, this glorification of motherhood, um, Mariology based on motherhood rather than this other kind of spousal Mariology has really huge positive uh, feminist implications. Sarah, you go first. Uh, sure. And I did um, want to back up uh, what, what you um, just mentioned about uh, Carla's contributions about the, the connection of, of mother and child, particularly with regard to fetal cells. And again, remember, it's not so much that Mary is, is divine as it is that she's the closest that we can get um, to human perfection without being divine, if that makes sense. Um, but um, when you mentioned that this that this scientific discovery could have huge implications for Mariology, my first thought was uh, was in fact um, this idea of the assumption, which is um, for those of you who aren't familiar, the teaching that at the end of her life, Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven, so that her body did not have to suffer the degradation um, or the decomposition that bodies would have to do and or that bodies usually do uh the this idea of the corruptibility of the body that mary would be exempt from that as a result of her sinless state so um so if in addition to that she has carried some of the you know the physical body of of the son throughout her life, then that seems to lend even more credence to, to a teaching like the one on the assumption. So I just wanted to toss that out there. Yeah, uh, that's super interesting. That's uh, And so, but to Victoria's question, yeah, since I don't have children, this portion of boss's piece didn't resonate with me in quite the same way that I think it might have for Carla. And I don't know if it resonated in any way in this way with you, Victoria. Um, so, um, 
Catholic responses to Mary and to the role of women within the church uh, do frequently come back to the importance of motherhood. So this is a trope that I've heard before. I know we've talked a little bit about the difference between a motherhood model for Mariology versus a spousal model for Mariology. And Suarez um, actually cites uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger as uh, one of the proponents of a, of a spousal Mariology. Um, but uh, but the prevalence of this motherhood idea uh, is certainly one that I'm familiar with. Even fairly recent publications within the Catholic Church from uh, Pope John Paul II's letter, uh, Mulieris Dignitatem, which uh, came out 25 years ago, um, and his subsequent letter on women, uh, to Pope Francis's comments about the 25th anniversary of Mulieris Dignitatem just a few, uh, just a few months ago, um, ultimately hold up maternity as one of the primary ways that women function within the church. Um, in fact, uh, Francis's comments um, warn against devaluing women's roles, from, uh, quote, from service to servitude uh, in, his, uh, in his reflection on the anniversary of Mulieris Dignitatem. Um, but the other alternative that uh, receives mention if we're not going to talk about maternity or motherhood and, and its importance uh, as a role for women within the church is that of virginity. Uh, that, in other words, um, according to Mulieris Dignitatem, um, of the uh, what the encyclical refers to as the renunciation of physical motherhood because of the total gift of self to Christ that can make possible a different kind of motherhood, a spiritual motherhood that can take on many different forms. So it's this many different forms of non-physical motherhood where I think the church tries to open up space for women who do not have children, um, but the focus is still on that of a caretaker for whom Mary can still be an exemplar and the language is still that of motherhood. It's just modified by spiritual as opposed to physical. Um, but it does seem to allow for alternatives, however nondescript they currently are. Um, even Pope Francis uh, has issued providing concrete examples of these alternatives in his commentary recently. Um, so I'm still trying to work through what I think and feel about this issue, and it's definitely a process of, of prayer and faith. Um, but I'm not sure. Victoria, what do you think? I am also trying to work through those kinds of issues right now. Um, I am... Uh, heads up, listeners, it's about to get a little personal up in here. Um, I, I'm in this time in my life where everyone around me is having babies, and I have chosen for reasons that are personal and complex and right for me uh, not to do that. And especially recently working in an overtly Christian environment, I've gotten a lot of um, mostly friendly, but sometimes not so friendly, pushback against that decision and there are certain people who've made, either made me feel or in some cases said outright um, that I am not fulfilling my role as a Christian woman by choosing not to have children. And so hearing you, Sarah, talk about the space that the church has um, carved out to even if it's not incredibly clearly articulated, to be a mother without being a mother, to, to nurture, nurture and um, to raise up young women. Um, I, I don't know if you get this, but Titus 2 gets thrown at me a lot, um, To that it's our responsibility as women who are getting older in the Christian faith to teach younger women how to be Christian women. Um, I certainly feel that I can do that without giving birth to the people that I'm teaching. Uh, so it's it's really uh, heartening to me to learn that the Catholic Church is acknowledging this and sort of realizing that, that motherhood can be a lot of things and does not have to necessitate um, birthing children. So beyond that, I don't know. This is something that I think about a lot and, and pray about a lot and I'm kind of working through. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Um, I don't get scripture thrown at me um, all that much um, to to play playfully joke about my own faith. We we don't uh, 
we don't always do that. <laughs> you know, we, we tend not to, um, not to be able to, to quote scripture in the way that, that some of our, our Christian sisters can do. Um, for me, it's, it's mostly just an, an assumption as a newlywed that, well, okay, so now you're married, so here's the next series of incredibly intrusive questions, um, well-meaning and well-intentioned more often than not, but, but intrusive questions about, about my plans to have children and what those might look like. And I have not figured out, uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to respond gracefully to those inquiries because I am still praying through it, um, and, and working on it. So I'm with you. I like the idea, even if it is couched in terms of motherhood, but yes, this idea that there is a place, uh, for women who, who do not have children, whether that is, is a choice or whether that is, uh, something that is, that has not been a choice for them. Um, so yeah, (laughs) I also found it interesting, Sarah, that you, that what, the quote that you read talked about, um, motherhood is, is being sure that it's talked about as a service and rather than, rather than a servitude. Because mm-hmm. from, from the side of, you know, somebody who has stayed home or, you know, I've, I've done both, stayed home and worked out of the home <clears throat> since I had children, there certainly can be a feeling that culturally speaking, there's, this is verging, this is going away a little from what you guys were talking about, although I, I'd like to come back to it. But, um, there is a sense of, of feeling like like it's servitude because it's not economically um, gratifying, right? You don't make money as a stay at home mother. <laughs> um, you so there is a tendency for it to feel like a, a servitude rather than a service. So I like the fact that there's been some effort on the part of the Catholic Church to rectify that for for mothers um, to to give it some honor to give it the sort of weight that it feels like culture sometimes doesn't give it. Um, but at the same time, making it so central so that a woman can only be defined by what she does toward motherhood, even if, even if she doesn't have children, as you guys were saying, to still couch her service in terms of motherhood seems to me a disservice because there, there are a lot of other ways to be. There are a lot of other ways, and I'm going to use the term serve, um, to serve that, that don't have anything to do with, with motherhood. So I think that, that, that can be a a very limited, I mean, even, even serving by not caring for others, motherhood always implies a caring for others, right? When you use those terms, um, to me, serving through, through teaching or serving through whatever you do as a, as an occupation or a vocation, um, is as, valid for a woman, right? As it is for a man. So I, I kind of, it seems regret, regretful to me, regrettable that, that it's couched in terms of motherhood. I, I understand what you're saying that we sort of all women's service has to fit under this one label. And, and that does seem a little bit, a little bit limiting. Um, on the other side of that though, as, as someone who, um, does deal with it, a, a kind of social pressure, both within the church and outside of it, um, that that motherhood is, and I'm I'm sort of ventriloquizing here, uh, the the highest possible calling a woman can hold. Um, there is a part of me that likes labeling, um, for example, the the work that I do as a faculty mentor as motherhood. Because I, I do think it is a kind of motherhood. I mean, I'm I'm nurturing and guiding and buying people food, you know, and, and giving them Kleenex when they're sick or whatever, like all of these sort of things that seem silly, um, are, are things that I'm doing too. So while I do agree with you and feel like that, um, that, that label can be restrictive, there is also a part of me who feels kind of validated and freed by it being applied to what I'm doing too. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from, Victoria, and and I also understand, uh, and I also understand your perspectives, Carla. And these are all the kinds of things that I'm working through as I'm as I'm trying to figure things out. Uh, some people anecdotally have commented that, or have posited, or hypothesized that uh, part of the reason why our current Pope Francis has not said anything more overt than 
than he has in with regard to the role of women within the church is um, is in an effort to to not alienate any faction or well, I don't want to call it a faction, but to not alienate any one group within the church by saying anything that could be perceived as too radical. And um, as an institution, I know we move very, very slowly. So, um, so yes, while on the one hand, I, I absolutely understand all, all of these reservations and, and all of these points of inquiry. Um, I'm not disheartened because I feel like we're still moving, uh, however, deliberately um, in a positive direction overall, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it does. Before we go to our final segment, uh, just to make sure we've covered all of the boss piece we want to, let's do a kind of lightning round where each of us uh, talks about a passage or a concept we think we should cover before we finish. I'll start. And I want to um, continue the discussion we've been having about bodies and the importance of women's bodies. Uh, Boss says at one point early in the piece that um, first it's important to establish that Mary, in assenting to bear Jesus, um, has moral agency. Uh, She agrees. Uh, So first this moral agency is important, but Boss says we can't stop there. But that moral agency, Mary's act of free will, would be of purely private interest. It would not be of universal importance if it did not lead to the bodily conception of the world's Redeemer, the Eternal Word. Christ redeemed us in his flesh, in his passion and death on the cross, but also in his carnal human life in general, and his bodily resurrection. Christ redeemed us in the flesh, and it was Mary who gave him that flesh. So Mary is not only a moral, but also a physical agent in the Incarnation. Um, And I I had to read that paragraph two or three times because I thought, like, what an amazing, incredible, beautiful veneration of female physicality that is so often said to be naturally based and sinful. I mean, we get um, really early the Cartesian split, the idea of the body and the soul being separate, gets gendered with um, the soul and the sort of things of the mind and uh, and rationality being uh, masculinized and privileged, and the opposing things of the body, uh, the base, the physical, being feminized and marginalized. And so to see this um, opposing that, to see this saying that, like, not only is the bodily feminine, but the bodily feminine should be uh, important and, and raised up and, and shown to be um, a necessary part of uh, why Christ is the way Christ is, that was really huge to me and seems to have really important um, feminist, theoretical, and religious implications. Absolutely. I had I had a similar thought of that. Just the, the entire conversation about the physicality that really where Suarez bases most of his... Um, his thoughts on Mary and, and what, what he develops out of there comes from the physical act of bearing, of bearing Jesus, of that whole, uh, like I said, shared substance and those things that are, that are very physical in my mind immediately back to the research I had done on, on Britomart and, and her, um, her desire to not be housed in a female body, that whole idea that the female body somehow kept her from, from, um, fully experiencing, uh, her divine connection. Um, that, that was actually so fascinating to me to read about Mary and her physicality actually being her divine connection. Uh, that was just, like you said, a complete switch of, of what, um, of what had been laid out. And I, I thought that was incredibly empowering and fantastic. We also kind of talked earlier about Mary as the counterpart to Eve. Um, and, and I thought, that was one part that I thought was great as well. Um, it's based on the idea again, that they both share substance is how boss lays it out. And Suarez lays, laid it out as well. Um, that, you know, Eve shared substance with Adam and that's how she became sort of the counterpart in the, in the fall. And because she was made out of his body, so, you know, is the, is the story as the story goes. Um, and, and then Jesus and Mary also sharing physicality was interesting. Um, but again, like I said earlier to me, that brings about sort of an inclusive wholeness to the, 
dialogue that was missing for me um, as I heard those stories grow, growing up. For, for me, growing up, those stories were told in a wholly male way where it was entirely a male's responsibility, entirely Adam's responsibility, a man's responsibility, and then um, entirely Jesus's responsibility. And, and yes, in some sense, the Jesus especially story, that may be true, but the, the idea of Mary and Eve being a counterpart to that um, was just really, it, it brought a wholeness to the picture and to the story, to the mythical picture, I guess, that hadn't been there for me before. So that was something that I thought was great. Um, I also just think the whole process of how we talk to ourselves about these things is really fascinating. How we talk about um, Mary as either a spouse or a mother and what it has to say about a certain time period's priorities and and uh, certain needs that we have as people. I just found that really interesting, the whole discussion and how we tend to talk to ourselves about these sort of mystical ideas that are somewhat beyond our understanding, and yet we're expected to gain as much understanding of them as we can. I just find the whole process very fascinating and what it has to say about our needs as people. So that was interesting to me, too. Yeah, that that's really interesting. The the idea that we're we're all sort of um, to, to borrow a current popular evangelical phrase, we're all sort of creating God in our own image um, in, in interpreting these stories. And, and how can we do that as women? Do we have space to do that as women? Um, d- does Mary give us more space to do that? Those are, are really interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. I think, I think me, uh, my growing up, not knowing as much about Mary, I think that as, as we talked about this and studied it a little bit here, I can see that that has, has robbed me a little bit of having a bit of an understanding of, of, of female, a woman's role, um, in this whole process. So it's just been really fascinating. Great. Thanks. Uh, Sarah, did you want to, uh, give us a passage to look at? Yeah, sure. And I actually had um, I had a sort of a general overarching question and then a, a small one. And I'm going to ask for for y'all's help on these, because these are these are passages for which I actually have questions for you guys um, that I'm hoping you can help me uh, help me with. Um, towards the beginning of the article uh, or the chapter, uh, Boss says that the purpose of this chapter is to show that Suarez's maternal Mariology provides an interpretive model by which the relationship between God and humanity is understood without recourse to gender as a primary category and in which emphasis is given to unity between creator and creation and correspondence between heaven and earth. It will be suggested that this is theologically and anthropologically superior to more recent spousal Mariologies, which involve a new emphasis on sexual difference and which prevent a proper grasp of the implications of the hypostatic union for Christian anthropology. So I was wondering about this this statement that Boss makes in the first uh, three or four pages of her chapter, uh, particularly with regard to the points that we have just brought up about, um, about a motherhood model or a maternal model for Mariology as one that is embodied as one that, um, as one that, that plays into all of these significances and has all of these, um, these uh, feminist in a good sense uh, consequences uh, for us, um, how, uh, like, how do, how do these two claims gel? Like, does, does what boss actually do end up contradicting this claim that she makes, um, in this statement or have I overlooked something or misinterpreted her claim? Because I've been a little confused about that. And then I was also wondering, um, how might we want to respond, um, from a feminist perspective, um, particularly for those who might ask us about feminism, especially if if people are going to come to us with questions about um, feminism being a course of study that that is in a sense or in some iterations uh, predicated on the assumption of difference if what Suarez is arguing for is, um, is a Mariology that in which differences are subverted, overcome, and minimized. How do we gel that with um, with a feminist perspective? What, what do you guys think? Because I'm I'm trying to figure this out and not doing a very good job of explaining my question. 
I think those are really great questions, and I was also um, I, I wanted to to ask a similar question too. Um, while I'm, I, I support Suarez's sort of veering away from the spousal model on the basis um, of uh, Boss says for an anthropological emphasis on gender uh, seems to be tied to placing of marriage or sexual relationships at the forefront of human relationships in general. Um, in in the sociology classes I teach, um, we talk about master roles, the idea that there's one role that we occupy that defines us more than other roles. And in the 21st century, for most people, the master role tends to be uh, sexual. That, that's how we sort of think of people. We label them as heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual, and then we talk about them as people. Um, this, I think, is a bad move, but this is not the episode to talk about why I think that's a bad move. Um, in any way, I, uh, in any case, I agree with the diversion from that, but um, Boss says that because Suarez makes that choice, he's making a not-gendered choice in focusing on motherhood rather than the spousal relationship. I totally do not get how motherhood is not a gendered choice. I think the thing that I would say about that kind of goes back to what struck me about the piece. And I, I get, I feel like there's a little bit of confusion there too. What I feel like boss is trying to do though, is to say that the thing that makes that the thing that what affects both Mary and Jesus in this relationship is their shared body, you know, that they share some sense of, of physical oneness, right? That's very literal. It's not, it's not mystical. It's literal. And so it's not, but it's not about the fact that they, that, I mean, because obviously to be a mother, you have to be a woman. There is some of that, but it's, it's, it's their shared humanity that ends up being the thing that overcomes the difference. So I feel like that's where she's headed with it, that, that the oneness of our shared humanity is what overcomes our differences, including those of gender. Um, and that's where I, that's where I go back to. That's what I think she's trying to, to communicate that, that there it's, it's not necessary that you be a different gender to recognize a shared humanity, to recognize a shared substance. Um, I guess that's, that's where I see it going, but obviously because motherhood is very gendered, um, there it's a bit problematic to me as well. That makes sense. I, Seeing it from a perspective of this is really about humanness, that that makes more sense. That's to me where I feel like she was trying to go with it that 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 we um, share this same the same humanness, and that's what we sh- that's where the focus lies here. But but I'm not sure that she that it's communicated entirely that way without the gendered part. No, I think no that that definitely helps put a frame around the question that I had. Um, the only other, uh, bit that from the article that I noticed and, um, and wanted to point out, um, in the, in the section on kinship and gender, um, that the, under that subheading, uh, boss argues, um, argues that Suarez's focus on Mary's maternal relationship to Christ and by extension to the church follows from scripture in a way that the bridal or spousal relationship to Christ does not. And this was a moment for me when reading it, perhaps it was the Catholic in me coming out, but the exclusivity of the scripture-based approach to Boss's argument left me wondering what other sources might be available to justify the bridal or spousal relationship between Mary and Christ. Um, And I can't now that I am looking for it, I can't find the place. Um, there is reference to extra biblical sources um, in somewhere. I think, yeah, I think there she goes back to actually saying that this is how Suarez did his did his yeah. research, um, did his thinking was through this idea that the yeah she talked about um, yeah there being the literal interpretation. Okay. So in the, on this last paragraph on that next page in the kin, kinship and gender section, right. Uh, he talks about Thomas includes the literal sense of a text, the whole intention of an inspired writer, re- regardless of whether the text was written as a bald narrative or a factual list, um, or whether it was symbolic or metaphorical. So she's saying, I guess that the literal sense can be, um, 
can be broadly defined as the whole intention, but it still does have to be some sort of literal, could, could be literally concluded from mm -hmm. the text where the, the extra, these other readings are coming from, like you said, traditions or, or um, outside logic, outside of the literal reading, which I found really interesting, I guess, just because in my world, little, literal reading was such a, such a focus, you know, that the whole thing is just, it's just right. Um, and then it says, yeah, she goes on to say on the next page that even allowing for Thomas's highly inclusive understanding of the literal, it is hard to see how arguments about Mary's bridal status could follow from it. Um, the claim that Mary's motherhood of the divine son renders her literally the spouse of the father depends upon one of two consideration. It either denies the virginal conception and effectively rewrites the narrative of Jesus's conception so that it involves a pagan type sexual union or else it makes an imaginative addition to scripture, which is what she's saying that Suarez wouldn't do. Make that imaginative addition. Right. Okay. I see. I see that. Um, I see. I see that passage there. My my question then became as I was reading it. Um, so, so if the spousal union is one that, for example, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth was positing. Um, makes an imaginative addition to scripture. Uh, Mary undertook a mutual commitment of the type undertaken. In either case, the argument does not follow from the text. I'm, I'm curious, and I, I didn't uh, get a chance to find an open, um, an open access source copy of the books uh, by Benedict XVI that uh, Boss cites here. I tried to find a couple of summaries of his arguments there, but mostly they were... Uh, personalized book reviews. They weren't really analyses of the arguments. Um, so I would be curious to see if that, um, if that claim does in fact hold up, if that makes sense, um, or to see what kinds of sources, or if there is in fact a scriptural basis for the spousal relationship that Suarez didn't see or overlooked or that didn't appear in this article. Um, so that that's my homework for myself. <laughs> I was also curious about that as well as how that reading, um, if it is validated by scripture, gels with um, the, the common metaphor I heard growing up of the church as the bride of Christ and, and how like do those two marriages work at the same time? Like, I, I don't understand sort of how that works. So maybe we need to um, research that a little bit on our own and maybe we can come back to that at a later time. Mm -hmm. Sure. But now's the time to uh, switch gears a little bit and enter into our final segment on recommendations. Sarah, what do you have for us? All right. Um, my recommendation is actually this time a summary of Mulieris Dignitatem, the encyclical I referenced earlier, um, or the apostolic letter. I see both of those terms applied to the document um, that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Since the letter itself is nine chapters long and includes an introduction and a conclusion, and because Carol Wotiwa was a philosophy uh, student and might have actually been a philosophy professor uh, before he became Pope John Paul II, um, his work is very dense, um, very complex. Um, this document that I found provides a strong summary of the letter's contents. There will be a link to it on, um, on the website. And since uh, the letter has been the basis for so much of the Catholic, Catholic Church's recent thinking about the role of women within the church, I hope that the summary clarifies the letter's main points for our listeners and maybe uh, provides a starting point for some research amongst our, our listenership. Um, Carla, what do you have for us? Uh, mine veers way off of where we're at, but I, I sort of couldn't help myself a little bit. Um, there's a section where um, Boss talks about the joining. She's talking about the joining of God and creation in the birth of Jesus and um, um, us sort of being in God and God being in us and, and that whole combination. And she, she veers off into the, the sort of sacredness of the earth. And um, I was really drawn to that. And she writes here, um, for example, the Muslim writer Saeed Hossein Nasir has argued that one of the, case, one of the causes of the wor world's current ecological crisis is that humanity has forgotten that the earth must be understood in relation to heaven. 
He contends that for humanity to have a proper respect for the earth, understood to mean the material creation as a whole, we have to understand the earth as having a relationship to heaven and hence being sacred. It is because we no longer believe in, have a belief in heaven that we are destroying the earth. Suarez's contention that in the union of God and creation, in Jesus, things of earth become a counterpart to the divine, seems to imply that the earth possesses the capacity for glorification and therefore the kind of sanctity that Nasir argues is imperative for us to recognize. Um, that section reminded me of a book that I read um, about sort of the earth as, as the counterpart to heaven and our responsibility to it and its potential. Um, and it's called Surprised by Hope, and it's by N.T. Wright. So I know this veers way off of Mariology, but I just couldn't help myself. That section and that idea of, of God and creation being intimately and deeply connected and, and how that's illustrated through Mariology um, drew me off into this sort of um, ecological uh, place that I couldn't help but go. So my recommendation is Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. Great. Thanks, Carla. Um, and, and don't worry about going off topic. <laughs> I mean, you, you didn't really, but um, no, that, that sounds great and really interesting. Uh, I'm a pretty big N.T. Wright fan, and I haven't read that whole book, but I have read pieces of it. Um, so I, I, I can recommend, yeah, he does some really good stuff. Uh, my recommendation is a bit more boring than that. I'm just going to recommend uh, the book that this week's reading came from. Um, we read a chapter by Sarah Jane Boss, and she was also the editor of the entire compilation, which is called Mary the Complete Resource. Pretty simple uh, title there, but it, it really does seem to be a complete resource. Um, it's a kind of encyclopedia. It's chronologically and thematically organized. It goes from the medieval period through the 21st century, um, has a whole section of various feminist responses, different feminist views of Mary. Uh, I spent some time uh, while I was taking breaks, grading final exams, reading pieces of articles uh, for that reason. I think it might be overdue at our school library right now. Sorry, librarians. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, I, I would recommend that you check out Mary the Complete Resource if you have a chance. And that wraps up episode four on Mariology. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For Sarah Moro-Cernelia and Carla Ewert, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks for a discussion of feminism on television. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>